this episode of Brave Talks, I share a poignant conversation with Jean Kwok, whose writing has topped the New York Times bestselling charts and has been enjoyed and recommended by Oprah, Entertainment Weekly, The Washington Post, and so many more. We'll be exploring how grief has guided her writings and the tenacious bravery it takes to live an engaged and surrendered life. start off by letting the listeners know how we know each other because this isn't it doesn't feel to me like an ordinary podcast I mean it is right but like I've listened to you on so many other podcasts and I feel like I have the golden ticket not because this is a wonderful podcast but because we have a relationship um that's so deep and it's so intimate so do you want to share how we know each other well, of course. I mean, Emily, you are, of course, um, so much a part of my life um, in so many ways. And it really all began with my brother, Kwan, who was the inspiration behind my book, Searching for Sylvie Lee, because um, my Kwan is Kwan is the brother of mine in real life who disappeared. Um, and Searching for Sylvie Lee is, of course, about the dazzling older sister who disappears. And I remember um, when he disappeared, and it was really such a difficult time for me and for my family. I mean, Emily, you and your whole family were right there for us. And um, Emily is, of course, many things, you know, fashion icon. No, I mean, she's just an amazing <laughs> woman in so many ways. But she's also incredibly competent. I mean, that's the thing about you. You. Um, are just so good at doing stuff. And that was a time when there was a lot of chaos and a lot of paperwork and things that just needed to be arranged with, um, you know, finding him and figuring out what had happened to him. And then all of the arrangements after, you know, they actually did find his body. So um, that, you know, that was kind of the beginning of our time. And then Emily flew in and she was a part of the entire, you know, Chinese um, funeral and or the memorial that was held for my brother and everything else. And that was the beginning of our friendship. But of course, we've been friends for many years since then. And we've uh, kind of helped each other with, with our careers. We've talk to each other about our personal lives, about being moms, about so many other things. Um, and then the thing that we were actually just chatting about right before we officially started this podcast is that I don't know how many of you know this, but Emily is my fashion guru. And she doesn't she doesn't dress me because I don't think I'm stylish enough for Emily to dress, but she dresses my she dresses my characters. So all of my characters that are really like, you know, beautifully dressed, they're all dressed by Emily. So I write to her and I'm like, Emily, so Sylvie in searching for Sylvie Lee. Her wardrobe is courtesy of Emily because I was like, Emily, I need her to be this fashionable, beautiful woman who's elegantly dressed. And, and Emily's like, okay, well, she would be wearing those sneakers and those boots. And no, 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 no. She would not be wearing that brand. That is out. She's like, no, she's <laughs> got to be wearing this instead. So, I mean, that is why Sylvie is such an amazing character. Matt, my husband, is probably laughing as he's listening to this. He's probably like, 
I'm so glad she's dressing your characters and not actually herself because the credit card bills would be mounting, (laughs) which is also, have you ever been shopping like retail therapy and you load up your, your shopping cart with like 15 things and then you never buy it. And it just feels so good to like load it up. Like this is my style. (laughs) That's what I do for you, Jean. So you think I'm helping you, but I'm actually just participating in retail therapy without getting in trouble in my house. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think you're amazing. And the great thing is, you know, the new book that I'm working on right now has some beautifully dressed people in it. And they're all going to be dressed courtesy of Emily. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. So this whole episode could be about Quan. I mean, what an amazing, incredible individual you and I both know him differently, both intimately. You know, the listeners, I think, would value knowing more about Quan. And so I'll share a little bit about my experience with Quan. So I always called him my funkle, my fake uncle. He was working for DARPA, like defense research. And he also was helping out our family with different businesses and what we were doing in D.C. at the time. Confidential stuff. Most things in Washington, D.C. are. I just was so taken by Quan and his enthusiasm. And I mean enthusiasm in italics or all capital letters for life. Quan drove a Ferrari. Well, he never drove it. He kept it in his garage. (laughs) He had helicopter. He had a plane. He traveled a lot. He was very cultured. He was kind individual and so loving. I had never been flying with him before. And he always said, I'll take you up in the Cessna or whatever. And this is, I think this was before 9-11 because we actually flew together over Washington, D.C. and saw the monuments and everything. But I remember he took me up in a Cessna and it was a hot summer day. And I'm in there, you know, melting. And I'm so nervous because I didn't realize like flying in a plane is not like flying commercial where you can like kick back and maybe take a Xanax if that's your style. Like, uh uh-uh, this is like full on craziness. So I'm sitting there, I'm like sweating all of a sudden. I almost puke in the plane. And I was like, Quan will kill me if I throw up in his like beautiful Cessna. So I was like, you better land this plane right now or I'm going to throw up. (laughs) He was like, okay, okay, okay. So he lands the plane and we're in like some random airport in Maryland. I was like, so how do we get back to where we were? And he was like, we have to get back in the plane. (laughs) And I was like, no. Not at all. Like, I'm going to call my family and have somebody come pick me up because I like, I, I'll get sick. But sure enough, I got back in the plane. And like, before I puked again, we landed at the right airport. And I was like, I'm never doing that again. Like, there was no air conditioning. I was melting, not my speed. So anyway, and I have another funny story that I'll share. Um, one New Year's Eve, Quan, um, so Quan never drank, but I was like, you know, out of college, like, party girl. And, um, I, we were in Idaho. We were all skiing. My whole family was there. Quan was there. He's also part of our family. And, um, and I remember our neighbor, well, we went out like, you know, to the, the restaurant, which was having the New Year's Eve party where they burned the skis and did the whole, you know, 
skiing down the hill with your um, torches, with the torches and all that. And maybe even Quan participated in that. That probably was something he would do um, since he was an expert skier. This is the part of the night I remembered is that we made it to our neighbor's house who had their own tequila uh, with like worms in the bottom of it and everything. And Quan, because he was a teetotaler and he didn't drink, was watching them throw the tequila over their shoulder and I was taking shots, right? I was like, I was speaking French by the end of the night. And Quan was like, sister friend, let's get out of here. And these like, these people were like digging for like information on our family's business. And Quan's like, all right, like it's time to go. He was like my bodyguard. So he like corralled us, um, me and my friends, and we left speaking French <laughs> and um, got back to my house. And my grandfather was laughing so hard that I was so hammered and you know, I was so hungover the next day, but Quan saved us as he always did. And the last thing I want to share about Quan, because I, if you know Quan, you have a million stories about Quan. And this leads me into our conversation is that Quan, when I was working with my family, told me, if you don't go out and experience your life and jobs and career paths, you'll never find out what it is that really lights you up. You have to go out and find what you love. And that's when I decided to move to Miami. And that was right around the time that Quan got in his accident and um, and we were searching for him. Um, and what I think and what I've read and what I've heard from you is that, and, and I'll just ask a question, but I assume he was your inspiration to even write in the beginning because I, I believe he gave you a journal and a pen, your first journal and pen. So can you tell us a little bit about like what, encouraged you or inspired you to write? Well, you know, it's so great to hear these stories um, about him because, of course, I wasn't there. And, you know, he's my brother. So I also don't know, like, all the facets, other facets of him. Um, but I can tell just kind of starting back at the beginning, I mean, I think what most people who knew Quan later in his life, because Quan is really a really brilliant guy, you know, he had two PhDs from MIT. I think he held the record for the highest score on the doctoral exam or something. Like he just was one of these guys who seemed so accomplished and successful. And like you said, he was really annoying as a brother in that way. He was like James Bond. Like he could do everything, you know, like everything. You knew if the building caught on fire, he would like find a vine and like swing you out of there, you know? He'd like get the fire extinguisher. Like he could fly an airplane, he could fly a jet, he could race cars. He like did skydiving. I mean, he was an expert golfer. He was really so annoying, you know, <laughs> much like, of course, like you totally love him, but it's also like, he just seems like this super competent guy who was born that way. But I think the thing that most people don't realize about him and about us is that we were incredibly poor. I mean, when we first came to the U.S., we lived in an apartment that was um, so run down with roaches and with rats, and that was unheated. I mean, there was not even a working central heating system uh, in the apartment that we were living in, which was, of course, illegal. But we didn't know that. I mean, we were new immigrants, and we just had no idea what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And Quan and I and the rest of my family worked in a factory for most of my childhood for many years. Uh, in fact, 
Kwan was there. Of course, he was also really good at working in the factory. <laughs> and he worked so hard and so well that the factory owner or manager saw him one day. And when she saw how well he could work, instead of, you know, giving him praise or a promotion or something like that, she cut our wages so that instead of making two pennies per piece at the time, we were earning one and a half pennies per piece of garment that we got ready in the factory, which was also illegal because, of course, you're not supposed to pay people by the piece. You're supposed to pay them by the hour. But that was our life. So Quan actually had to overcome a tremendous number of difficulties in order to get to where um, he came later. But indeed, I started writing when we were working in the factory and I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor in that unheated apartment. In fact, we would just turn on the oven um, and that was the only source of heat in the whole apartment. Now I think, oh, my God, like carbon monoxide poisoning and so many other things that could have gone wrong. But thank goodness didn't. Although the apartment was well ventilated because the windows in the back had no glass in them. People had thrown rocks through the glass. So, you know, they were just stuck, like pasted up with um, garbage bags. But who knows, that might have saved our lives. You know, the fact that the oven actually couldn't fully be contained um, within the apartment. But yes, one night, you know, I was already in bed after a long day at the factory. And Quan and my other brothers would like, you know, they were in high school. Like he would get up, he'd go to school. He'd have the whole long school day and then, you know, he'd come home. Uh, I mean, no, then he'd go to the factory and work a long shift like I did after school. And um, after that, like at nine or 10 o'clock at night, I would go home with my parents. But Quan and my brothers would actually go on to work a second job waiting tables at a restaurant to like two in the morning. So one of those days, yeah, he came back. And he um, lay a present on the mattress I was sleeping on. So I, I woke up and I was like, wow, a present, because I really didn't get a lot of presents. You know, you can imagine if we're earning so little per piece. Um, so I opened it and it was a book and it was a blank diary. Quan said to me, whatever you write in this will belong to you. So that was kind of, that was really the moment when I started to write, although I wouldn't, it wouldn't be many years later until when I was in college that I would decide to actually become a writer and to do something with that. But that was the moment when writing became one of the most important parts um, of my life. And it, it indeed, it all started with Quan. And I think the funny thing is because he was such a scientist and his whole life was really in math and science, he was still so accepting of the fact that, you know, I went to Harvard. And when I was at Harvard, I um, was a physics major because I was just also really in that whole math science thing. And then when I realized that what I really, really wanted to do was become a writer, I switched into English and Quan never opposed me. You know, I mean, he never said, what are you doing? How are you going to make a living? I mean, believe me, I had enough of those thoughts. Because from our background and how, you know, vulnerable we felt in terms of not having enough money and not having enough to survive, I was really afraid of taking a step like that. But he never said it to me. I mean, he always just accepted that that was what I wanted to do. And 
he always supported me. So that was a really beautiful thing. That's so beautiful. Do you think that you and Quan both would have had such success um, if you hadn't had so much adversity growing up and challenges? You know, that is such a great question. And I do think about that um, because I have I have two kids. I have two boys and they're both really smart. Uh, and I think, you know, like especially the, the, the younger one's still pretty young, but the older one is now 17. You can kind of see what kind of person he's going to grow up into. And he's he's so smart and he's so talented. He's not that driven, you know, he's kind of like, he's like, well, you know, I'll take it, I'll leave it. He's really happy doing his things. He's got a girlfriend and he loves his friends and, you know, he's a competitive skier and he's good at a lot of things, but he's not kind of crazy driven the way that Quan and I were. And I wonder, I mean, I wonder if it's because we had such a hard time when we were younger or is this something that's inborn? Because, of course, there are a lot of kids who are born not into circumstances quite as desperate as ours were and who are really, really driven. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. What do you think? What do you think, Emily? Well, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm I'm wondering, too, like, you know, you you're in high school. Right. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go to college, which you ended up going to Harvard. Incredible. And I wouldn't second guess anyone who goes to Harvard and wants to change their their major to from physics to English. I would say, great, you're still at Harvard. That's amazing. But what I'm wondering is like, you, you know, when you have so little, how incredibly hard is it to go through life with a sense of surrender and and that you're being taken care of and like letting love lead the way and I I just feel like I wonder if your decision if Quan's decision was out of um, in the beginning maybe like this not fear but like security like I need to protect myself and and take care of myself and my family or, or whatever, like, you know, this is my legacy. Um, and this is college is, you know, where it begins, but like, was there ever a shift from like, okay, you know, your first book was it a bestseller, you know, was there a moment where you're like, okay, I can like take a breath now. And like, I'm a New York times bestselling author. Um, and I can do this and I have the confidence now where I don't have to live in this like fear security mindset. And I'm just totally, you know, speculating and saying that you, maybe you did or you didn't, um, or were you just like, kind of like, okay, I made it to Harvard and I'm going to live, I'm going to choose this path out of love. Like what was it? What's that experience with fear and love? Like, are you able to come up with a moment in your mind where you're like, yeah, that's when it switched or maybe it never switched. Maybe it was always love. I don't know. You know, Emily, that is such an amazing question. And you know what's partly so amazing about that is that I asked your grandfather exactly that same question. So, yes. So uh, some of you may not know this, but Emily's grandfather is just this incredible man who's self-made, who is extremely successful and powerful and, you know, also an incredibly, incredibly nice person. And he was, in fact, you know, a real mentor and friend and I think kind of father figure to my brother Quan. And so um, I think when we're dealing with stuff for Quan's memorial and so on, I was staying with Emily 
uh, in her grandfather's house with the rest of the family, me and I think my niece, and they like, you know, there were a bunch of us there. But I was in the car with your grandfather. And we were driving somewhere and he was getting all these emails in from all the boards he was on. And he was saying stuff like, no, 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 no. Only sell that hits 2 million, you know? So we're on the car <laughs> and then he like put somebody on hold. And I said to him, you know, um, I'm just wondering, you know, because he had told me a story of how he had really made himself and how he had created his, his life and uh, become the incredibly successful man that he was. And I said, do you ever stop being afraid? And without hesitation, he said, no. He said, you never stop. And uh, that's my answer as well. And I think your father, your grandfather is so much more successful than I will ever be. But he, you know, I thought that was just so telling that a man who was so powerful and had been for so many years um, and, you know, has so much financial security and professional security and emotional with your wonderful grandmother and everyone else in the family that he said no so quickly, like with no hesitation. I would say the same thing. I think that when you have had um, a difficult upbringing and when you have had that kind of lack of safety, I don't know if you ever really feel safe. I think I'm extremely grateful for my life. I think. Um, I'm obviously less fearful than I was. You know, when I was in college, I was much, much, much more fearful before I ever got an agent. Before I ever published my first book, I was much more fearful, hard though that might be to imagine. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but even now, you know, I'm on my third book. Um, and of course, the newest book is Searching for Sylvie Lee, which is the one that's inspired by Kwan's disappearance and that was you know a today show pick a read with jenna pick an instant new york times bestseller it's my most successful book to date and yet you know i i do still i am still fearful they can all go away you know or that this is just some kind of a dream or that you know my financial security will disappear so i always do have that feeling of you know i want to keep writing I need to keep writing. I have so many more things I want to accomplish. There are more stories I want to tell. I want, you know, there are more books I want to publish. Um, and yeah, no, I, I, I never, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that's like to have that feeling of, you know, <clears throat> I'm here and I've made it and I'm safe and um, nothing can happen to me. I also don't think that life is like that. I think that, you know, we have every day and we're so lucky to have every day that we have, but actually you never know what can happen tomorrow. You don't know. You know, you hit the nail on the head when you said that life is just like that. You know, some people, you know, have an easy childhood. Some people have a really, really challenging childhood. Um, you know, and, and I just feel like you had, I think it was in Girl in Translation when your character go talks about, you know, you live in that apartment and the windows are broken out and you heat the, um, you really give like, you paint the perfect picture of the life that you grew up in. And that was Girl in Translation, right? Yes, that's right. That was my debut novel. And and I remember when I wrote that book, I felt such an urge to talk about, I mean, of course it is a novel, so it's not really about my life, but it is semi-autobiographical. It's definitely based on things that actually happened to me. And I remember writing it and feeling so um, protective of the fact that it really had happened because 
I think that, you know, when you live in that type of poverty, you feel like nobody else does, which is not true. Um, but you feel like no one else can understand that and you feel ashamed of it. You don't want to talk about it. And it really wasn't until the book came out and started generating all of this excitement and buzz and reactions from readers that I realized, you know, actually it's important to say it is semi-autobiographical. The, you know, the Go On Translation is the story of a smart girl who lives a kind of double life between her exclusive private school and her life as a factory girl. And of course, she falls in love with two different guys, one from each world. And in the end, she has to choose, you know, not only which one she's going to be with, but really who she wants to be. And, you know, that book that mirrors so much my own life, I realized it was important to say that, you know, the factory in the book, the apartment in the book, the way we lived, it's true. You know, it is actually um, what happened to me and my family and that people live like that. And so many readers have come and whispered in my ear, you know, please don't tell anyone, but you know, so did I. Um, but that said, I do think that, you know, difficulties are not limited to people living in poverty. I think mm -hmm. everyone, life is hard. Yeah. You know? yeah. Everyone has trials and tribulations. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or if you're poor. Um, there's so much, just being human is enough to make us all unite together, I think. Mm, absolutely. I, and I also think that just by sharing your your truth, even though they are novels, by sharing, you know, such polarizing truths of what your characters are going through, but these are real things that either you went through or that other people are going through, it really unites us uh, and we can have empathy for each other, whether that was our you know, situation, but now we can't be ignorant to it because we know about it. How many things are we ignorant to because we have so much on our plate and we just don't want to go there, but then we go there and we're like, what can I do to help? Or, or I have so much respect for everything that you've done, your resilience, you've clawed your way from there to like a New York Times bestselling author. I can't imagine how much hope you give so many children you know one of one of the things i wanted to ask you was what would you say to your 10 year old self or you know the version of jean that was going to school and then going into a factory and working long hours and and who maybe just got her journal and just discovering herself wow you really have the most amazing questions um you know because really these are not ones i yeah, a lot of times with an interview, you get a lot of the same questions, which is great. You know, that's also fun. You know, that's important information to cover. But I love these new and original questions you're sending my way. I, I think, you know, I think what I would say to my younger self is you're going to be okay. You're going to make it. And you know more than you think you do. Um, and I think what I mean by that is that I've made decisions in my life that I have really second guessed, like becoming a writer. You know, when I before I became successful, even sometimes after being successful, I've been like, why did I do this? Why did I choose to go into this field that is so competitive and where it's, it, you know, with, and that's so subjective? You know, then a way you can't be like, these are the 40 steps I need to take to become successful in this field. As a writer, it's really very, very intuitive and subjective if you're making yourself better or if you're making yourself worse. Um, and so I've wondered about a lot of decisions I've made. 
But when I look back now, I really think, you know, actually, I, I did have a kind of gut instinct that said, this is the right thing to do. This is the thing you need to do. And it, it really hasn't steered me wrong. So I think one thing I would say to my younger self is trust yourself. Um, and then maybe the other thing I would say, you know, to myself or to other people who are in, in life, it's just to remember to enjoy it. You know, and I think because um, when you are in the middle of something and you're trying to do it well, it's so easy to forget how wonderful your life is and how um, how special those moments are. So, for example, Girl in Translation was my debut novel, so I was completely unprepared for it. I had to go on tour and I had to go on NPR for the first time. I was terrified I'm mean, <laughs> terrified you know I mean the, all those kind of things that every time I told someone oh I'm gonna you know be on uh, you know national radio I mean since then I've been on you know the today show but at that point being on radio was a big deal for me and everyone was like oh great I'll tune in I was like no don't tune in. I don't want any more listeners you know I'm already terrified at the fact of talking to anybody in public so all of those things um you know I I, I just, I always want to try to remind myself and I remind other people going through that kind of experience for the first time. There is stress and fear, absolutely, but also enjoy it because it's an amazing thing. I mean, it's an incredible experience. So many, much of our lives is so special. And to take that moment, even if it's just, you know, you playing with Ollie or, I don't know, being with uh, somebody you really care about or taking a walk and looking up at the sky. Those are such beautiful moments. And to take that time to appreciate that, I think is something that makes every life more valuable. My grandfather has always told me to stop and smell the roses, not because he did, but I think it's because he didn't. You know, and he realizes, you know, looking back that that's probably one thing he wished he did. And now he does it more often, especially when we're over there and Ollie's playing with him and he just stops all phone calls and he's still, you know, the, the ticker still going across the televisions, <laughs> the ear pods are here. He's got phone calls coming in. Still. Still. He's in his 80s. Yeah, still. Yeah. And, you know, but when we're there, he stops and smell the roses. And I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. It is so hard when you're in it, when you're in the throes of it, whatever your challenge is, whether it's postpartum and trying to get your identity back, if that's something that you want, um, maybe it's, you know, creating a career path that, you know, you're not sure is meant for you, but you really want it, you know, and it's so hard when you're, in, you know, you look at, you're comparing yourself, right? There's so many things that we can do that um, put us into these moments where we stop being present. And then we start filling our minds up with eight bajillion pathways and thoughts that none of them are true because none of them exist right now in this moment. You know, that's so interesting. And you know what I was wondering when I was answering that? I was wondering what that was like for you when you were modeling and then you chose to give it up. I mean, what was, did you enjoy it? Did you, do you wish you'd enjoyed it more? I mean, it's certainly a special experience that a lot of 
you know, yeah, a lot of women aspire to or dream of. I mean, what was that like for you? Sure. Turn the interview around, Jean. Way to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> so it's a great question. Um, I and, and actually, it's very relevant to this time. I, I have a love-hate relationship with modeling. I love the creative expression, and I loved being on set especially when it was an editorial and it involved a lot of artistry and creativity and trust with your team to get the perfect shot. Then you have the commercial stuff that's more like the bread and butter, which is, you know, the catalog, the campaign or whatever. The campaign, like that, the big pictures are fun with, you know, they bring in the the big guns, the, the best hair person, the best makeup person, the best photographer. That's really fun it's, it's, you're so elated and to feel like a goddess, you know, like that feeling is just, I think every woman should feel celebrated in that way. It's part of us. Fast forward, I stopped modeling because for many reasons that the listeners already know, I had body dysmorphia. I went through plastic surgery and risked my life to try and fit into a size that the industry wanted me to be and in a shape that the industry wanted me to be and everything the industry wanted me to be. And it just was ruinous to my mental health and my physical health. So I left. And recently I have had the itch to get back into modeling, but it's almost like you have amnesia because I'm like, oh, I miss people paying me to take my picture and being celebrated. You know, I'm like this lonely pandemic mom with loads of laundry. Like, like where did that luxurious life where I had first class tickets to Europe go? I'm like, what is this dirty underwear? You know, like the writer in my mind is like having a field day of like, remember all these highlight reels and like our brains are wired to forget the crappy, whatever it is, the, the negative comments from our agents, the times that we had to strip down naked in front of clients to prove that, you know, our bodies were good enough for a job and, you know, just being reduced to a number or a size. So anyway, long answer. The end of the answer is the other day I had a call with my agent who wants me to start modeling again. And and I was like, what's the state of the industry right now. I mean, we're in a pandemic. What's going on? Are these models even making money? Like, I don't have a nanny for my son right now because of the pandemic. So I'm just asking all these questions. And she's like, well, you have so many followers. We'll get you on the influencer circuit as well. And, and I was like, immediately, I told her, you know what? I'm not interested. Immediately. And I was like, I thought I wanted to do this. And I'm so glad I picked up the phone and had this conversation with her to remind myself that I'm not interested because it just took me so far away from the identity I've worked so hard to get back in touch with. So that's a long answer to like how I feel about, you know, the whole modeling thing. Well, that's a, it's a great answer. You know what it made me think of? Like sometimes you date a guy and you break up with him, right? And then later on, you kind of think about him and you're like, you know, maybe if we'd met a little bit later in my life. Maybe if, you know, I mean, you start having these thoughts like, you know, he was really such a great guy and didn't really give him a fair shot. And I was also like, you know, did all these horrible things to him. And then I'm like, and then you're like, well, you know, maybe. So I kind of had that with somebody I had dated. I mean, I'm happily married. It's not like I was seriously considering something else. But you just kind of have that thought of, I wonder if I had given him a fair shot. And then um, I saw this 
person again. And yes, and within three minutes, I was like, I can't breathe. Nothing had changed. Like it was, it was like all in my mind, you know, that actually, I think like we were saying before, you have a gut instinct that steers you right and you can trust it. And it's human nature to second guess it and wonder if you had made a mistake um, with something like that. But I think nine times out of 10, when you revisit those situations, you're like, you know, that is why I did what I did. <laughs> that is why you left. Um, and then that's great. Then you know that you remember that. I think every novelist or creative or artist needs a very good objective therapist. Right, right, right. <laughs> to remind us that we're just dreaming. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay to dream. That's right. And I think in some ways that's, you know, what writing is as well. I mean, obviously it's not only therapy. I've always found writing to be a way to make things that are um, difficult, meaningful. It's by shining a light on something, by describing it, by writing about it. You don't have to pretty it up. You can just, you know, illuminate it. And that act of illumination is transformative. And I think that, you know, for example, like the death of my brother, you know, who died in an airplane accident, as you know, that was something that was so incredibly painful to me. And I wrote about it in Searching for Sylvie Lee, and I couldn't write about it directly because I, when I tried to make the book about the disappearance of a brother, that did not work at all. But when I changed the person to a woman, to the dazzling, brilliant, you know, incredible older sister, Sylvie, who disappears, then it was really natural that the younger sister, Amy, who'd always been in Sylvie's shadow, would kind of have to pull herself together and try to figure out what happened to her. And that was how I felt when Quan disappeared, too, that the person we had always leaned on, the person that we had always said, you know, if there's an emergency, first thing you do would be, of course to call Kwan, he was the one actually in trouble. Um, and so it was a transformative act for me to write this novel. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to write it and put it into the world and have people feel something when they read the book. You know, it makes you feel like a part of him is still alive um, in, that, in that book. And in fact, you know, it was your grandfather who gave us the first tip as to where he might have gone because he knew that Quan had flown to Texas to buy a plane. And of course, it was flying that plane back from Texas to West Virginia that he that he crashed. So, um, you know, that you guys were totally a part of the real story, the real life story behind Searching for Sophie Lee. It just really like floods me with so many memories. I I got to experience a Buddhist funeral or wake, whatever. I'm not sure how, what you call it. Um, and that was my first experience outside of being at Quan's house where I was acquainted with Guan Yin, with his Guan Yin and with, you know, Chinese art and even with real gold, not, you know, 18 karat gold, but these Chinese treasures. And um, he introduced me a little bit to the culture, but um, just you know, being a part of that uh, moment in time or, you know, not to think so linearly, but that moment, I, I just keep thinking about the deep guttural cries that 
I was almost ashamed and embarrassed to have when we were in the temple, but I just felt it so acutely. The grief was so intense. Um, we burned money for Quan. Is there anything, uh, I know I'm just talking about Quan and his legacy, but you know, I'm curious about just being an immigrant in the United States and, you know, you also live in Holland and you're Chinese. And so what has that been like for you? Do you feel like you're home everywhere you go or do you feel like you're a foreigner everywhere you go and, and you speak so many different languages? What is it like to, what does it feel like to you? Well, I, I think, you know, I definitely don't feel at home everywhere I go. I think it, it, it indeed it, it's the opposite. I probably feel more like a foreigner everywhere I go, but I do feel like a well-adjusted foreigner. Like, I feel like I know how to be a foreigner. You know, I know how to adjust. I know how to be an immigrant. Uh, since, like you said, I've been an immigrant twice in my life now. I was born in Hong Kong and then moved to the U.S. when I was five. And then as an adult, I moved from the U.S. to the Netherlands because I married a Dutch guy. Um, so I am speaking to you from the Netherlands right now. I think that it's, um, you know, the difficulty about moving from country to country is that you're never a part of the dominant culture. And what your instincts are, are always a little bit different from everyone else's, you know, so in Dutch society, there are there are wonderful people. They're extremely um, trusting and permissive. So you know, we there would be these things like um, you know the kids were eleven years old or something, and they all wanted to camp out on the banks of this river by these woods that was like a known like pickup sex joint. You know, <laughs> no, and all the other mothers were like. Yeah, that's fine. What could happen? I'm like, what could happen? Like, are you kidding me? Do you know? And it's like they're 11 years old. I'm from New York City. I know. I'm like, are you nuts? They're 11 years old in a little tent all by themselves on the banks of this thing where like people are known to like meet up for sex because it's the Netherlands. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure it's protected sex. Because the woods are filled with condoms, but used condoms is really awful. So, you know, so I'm like, no, like, no, no. I'm like, no. But then, of course, I'm like the bad mother because everyone else is allowed to do it because they're like, oh, you know, or, you know, it freezes here. Not very much. I mean, it's a pretty warm country and we live on the banks of this canal. And the moment there's like a millimeter of ice on the canal. My entire neighborhood, like all my neighbors, go out and they like stand <laughs> on it, you know, and they skate on it and they jump around on it. And like parts of it are still like not frozen, you know, it's still water. And they're like, oh, don't go there. That's water. And then, and then, you know, they see me like hiding behind the curtain in my house and they're like, come on out. Why are you not coming? You're not neighborly. I'm like, I don't want to die underneath the ice, you know? It's like, if the whole neighborhood goes, somebody's still got to be around, you know? So there are just, just so many things like that where you realize, you know, you just, you're not, you were not brought up there and you just think about things differently. But on the other, way, on the hand, I mean, it's a gift, you know, it's a gift to know that you have a choice. It's a gift to have a different opinion 
to think differently um, than everyone else because you can look at issues, you know, it's just, it's the whole thing about diversity. You can look at the world in a more rounded way. You know, you can see things that you might not have noticed in the past. And then, of course, the cool thing about speaking Dutch and English and Chinese is that, of course, in Searching for Sylvie Lee, my three narrators, so it's Ma, Sylvie, and Amy, they narrate the book in different languages. So even though the book is, of course, written entirely in English, when we're in Ma's head, we're thinking in Chinese. When we're in Amy's head, we're thinking in English. And when we're in Sylvie's head, we're thinking in Dutch. So you can have the joy of being a native speaker of those different languages um, as you read the book. But no, it is, it is, uh, sometimes it's not always easy, uh, but it, it can't, you know, it's, it's enjoyable, it's funny, and it is a gift to be able to be a foreigner in different countries. It's a beautiful way to to think about it. You speak about being an immigrant in uh, such a positive way, and and you talk about you know just opening your lens up to see the world in different ways is is so valuable, and it, it just you know makes the grass greener and the sky bluer, and that's what your novels have done for me is to open the world up in a new lens and, and a, any good novelist, you know, will do that. Hopefully um, being able to see things, not that your books are memoir, but to see things through, you know, Sylvie's eyes and through Amy's eyes and through Ma's eyes and through all of your characters. Um, and it just really stretches your empathy. Well, you know, that's what I really hope when I write the books and that's why I do that thing with the languages where you are really in the mind of someone who speaks a different language, because I think, you know, I think one of the nicest things I've ever heard about one of my books is that, you know, my books are taught in schools and Girl on Translation was on the curriculum. I think it was at CUNY in New York. And one of the professors told me that one of her students said to him, said to her, um, he said, you know, I think this book actually helped me stop being racist because he said, you know, when I'm on the subway and somebody bumps into me, he said, I used to just get really mad and I'd look at them and they'd look different or foreign and, you know, I would just judge them. But he said, but now I think what well, that could be someone who seems foreign to me and so different from me on the outside, but on the inside, that could be a person like Kimberly or Ma the characters in Girl in Translation, he said, it just, you know, makes me look at them in a different way. And I thought that was just such a beautiful thing. And that's what I hope to do that, you know, people read my books for an entertaining story, for great mystery, for a little romance, you know, for all those things. But then I hope that they do kind of come away with a richer, broader sense of who we are, you know, what we have in common as people and the awareness that who somebody is from the outside can be really different from who they are on the inside. Thank you so much for coming on Brave Talks, Jean. That is, I'm just, I I love you so much. And I just feel so grateful to have our friendship that I got to pick your brain and talk about Kwan's life and talk about Searching for Sylvie Lee and your other book. Um, Where can the listeners find Searching for Sylvie Lee? Oh, Searching for Sylvie Lee is, of course, in every, you know, indie bookstore. It's at Barnes & Nobles. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. Also, my two other books, Girl in Translation or Mambo in Chinatown. So they're, you know, they're really, if you Google them, they're everywhere. You can also check on my website 
jeanclock.com. And of course, I'm on all the normal social media sites. But um, Emily, thank you so much for having me. This has been such an incredible interview, not only because of your amazing astuteness and wonderful questions, but because it's a very personal podcast, I think, for both of us, because we have such a deep connection that goes back for so many years. I mean, just the fact that you could ask me a question about what does it mean to me? Do I feel safe? And I can say, well, I asked that to your grandfather you know, years ago. That kind of says it all, right? Isn't that amazing? That just says it all. So thank you so much for having me. I love being here. Oh, thank you. So before we wrap up, um, I have rapid fire questions. Do you mind? Sure. Okay, cool. Okay. Something that most people don't know about you. That I love to play Clash of Clans. <laughs> and I, you might not know what that is, but it's something that 10-year-old boys play. I started playing when my kids were 10 and I just never stopped. So I can bond really easily with like 10-year-old kids. <laughs> I'll send Ollie your way when he's 10. Can you describe writing in three words? Poignant, deep, satisfying. What's on your night table? Oh, gosh. Um, on my night table is a pad with a pen for writing down thoughts that I have um, in the middle of the night, especially for my book, some lip balm. It's an extra laptop. I have to tell you, this is really silly, but I have two laptops. I have a laptop and I have a big desktop computer. I have a big iMac. The iMac is for when I'm really working and need to be on it for hours. I have a laptop by my bed and I have a laptop downstairs. I mean, I know I could carry the laptops up and down, which I could and I do, but one is lighter. So one is actually for traveling with a smaller screen and the other one has a bigger screen for when I'm home and actually need to um, work on it. Last book you read and loved? I read um, this book that is coming out by Laura Dave. And it's a wonderful book. It's got one of those titles I can never remember because there's got no nouns in it. It's something like what he never told me or he, I don't know. It's Laura Dave's new book and it's a fantastic mystery. Another book that I do remember the name of that I really love is Jean Hawk Korolevs has a new book coming out called The Plot. I read a lot of books in advance because people ask me for blurbs or things like that. So I read them before they're actually on the shelves. Jean Hop Korolitz actually wrote The Undoing, which is um, that amazing, right, series. But it's with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And so Jean wrote that. She's a wonderful writer and a friend of mine. And she has a new book coming out called The Plot, which is fantastic. Can't wait for that one. Uh, if you had to pick an actress to see a movie about your life, who would you pick? Oh, that's really difficult. Um, I don't know if I could say who I would pick to play me, but I have spent a lot of time on who I'd pick to play Sylvie <laughs> because, <clears throat> because, you know, film rights are in play with a number of my books right now. So casting has been on my mind, not even though I will not be casting myself. Well, I think Gemma Chan is an incredibly fantastic, beautifully talented actress. Um, but there, and I can totally see her playing a number of my protagonists, but there are of course many, many other very talented actresses who could do that. Fill in the blank. Life is? Life is sweet and sour shrimp. 
Swedish chowder shrimp is one of my favorite dishes. And it's, you know, delicious, but it's not pure sweet. There are more um, difficult moments, but somehow that sourness accentuates accentuates and makes the sweetness more real and enduring. That is the best answer ever. (laughs) That was really good. If you could have any other job in the world, but not, you couldn't be an author and you were great at whatever you chose to do, what would you do? I probably would have stayed a professional dancer for three years in between my degrees at Harvard and Columbia. I worked as a professional ballroom dancer. And that's actually the basis of my second novel, Mambo in Chinatown, about a Chinese young dishwasher who becomes a professional dancer and has to win a ballroom dance competition in order to save her little sister who is sick. And so I loved dancing. There was a moment where I wondered if I should stay or if I should go back to writing. And at that point, I went to see a meeting by, I think it was Seamus Haley. I saw a professor of mine from Harvard there, Professor Helen Bendler, and she said, Jean, what are you doing now? And I told her, I said, I'm working as a professional ballroom dancer. And she said, Jean, you must return to the flock. And I thought, you know, she's right. I was like, what am I doing? I need to return to the flock. And that was when I decided to go back to Columbia and devote my time to um, actually to writing. That's hilarious. I remember you teaching us how to dance, me and your nieces in our kitchen in Virginia. Oh my God, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is right. You guys were amazing. <laughs> you what fight? You're like, you're doing so well. I was like, oh, and, and on top of all of that, you were the inspiration for our wedding dance. Because remember you were like, Emily, it's not a proper wedding unless you do an official dance. So Matt, actually, I was living in New York City at the time. He was in South Beach. He would have to fly up to Fred Astaire in New York City to take these dance lessons for our wedding dance. And we had this whole thing choreographed and it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. I saw the tapes. You guys were beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All Literally all thanks to you. I personally want to know in this rapid fire, what's the last thing you've burnt in the kitchen? Oh my God. Oh, oh well, that would have been today. Um, and it was, I, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it was a bunch of rolls in the oven. You know, somehow when you turn on the grill, like the difference between raw and black is so tiny. Like I just, I really don't know how people do it. It's like, you just go like this and it's like, Boom, like practically on fire, you know? So yeah, right. Emily knows me really well. <laughs> Favorite place you've ever traveled in the world? Probably Venice. Beautiful, beautiful city. And it's just, it is, there are a lot of tourists there, but it doesn't take away from how historic and how gorgeous it is and how romantic. And that's probably the reason that I set a scene in Searching for Sylvie Lee in it, because it's just such a beautiful, evocative, place filled with, I think, mystery and magic. Absolutely. I haven't been yet, but it's on my list. What do you want your legacy to be? I'm really thrilled with what my life has turned out to be right now. 
I've been so lucky that my books are being read and being taught in schools. The thing that means really the most to me is when people come to me and say, I read your book and it really changed my life. It really gave me hope in a dark moment. It really made me see things differently. And that's really all I've ever wanted. What has happened to me already and anything else would just be icing on the cake. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Jean. I'm so grateful to have you on the show and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and talk about your journey. It's been such a pleasure, Emily. Thank you. This episode is in memory of Jean's brother, Quan. If you'd like to follow Jean or get in touch with her, you can find her on social media at Jean Kwok Author, J-E-A-N-K-W-O-K Author. You can also find her on JeanKwok.com. Brave Talks is sponsored by Taja Collection Custom Candles. Taja Collection has designed a very special really beautiful, amazing, be pretty brave candle for all of you listeners who want to light up a beautiful message in your home or send it as a gift to those who could use bravery and courage in their lives. You can find the candle on tajacollection.com. That's T-A-J-A collection.com. And you can search for be pretty brave and you'll find the candle there. Brave Talks is produced by Madeline Inskeep. Video production is by Wallace Cruz. The music is produced by my dear friend, Murray Hittery, with Mind Travel. A heartfelt thanks to these three who support Brave Talks with their incredible talent and gifts. If you'd like to receive my monthly thoughts and a recap of this month's Brave Talks, head on over to emilynolan.com and click subscribe. Thanks for listening.